Welcome to Reading Christian Texts. Today we're going to be talking about Gregory of Nyssa's work on the life of Moses. I will not be reading from book one because book one is a very straightforward outline of Moses' life as is laid out in the scriptures. Book two, he goes into a uh, mainly allegorical analysis of Moses' life in relation to uh, the ascent of a person to knowledge of the divine. So I will start with his discourse on uh, Pharaoh's daughter who found Moses at the beginning of his life. And it reads like this. Experience teaches us that the restless and heaving motion of life thrusts from itself those who do not totally submerge themselves in the deceits of human affairs. And it reckons as useless those whose virtue is annoying. He who escapes from these things must imitate Moses and not spare his tears, even though he should be safe in the ark, for tears are the unfailing guardian of those saved by virtue. So clearly here he's talking about Moses's uh, mini exodus as he was floated on a tiny basket through the bulrushes at the beginning of his life. Now on to Pharaoh's daughter. Since the daughter of the king, being childless and barren, I think she is rightly perceived as profane philosophy, arranged to be called his mother by adopting the youngster, scripture concedes that his relationship with her who is falsely called his mother should not be rejected until he had recognized his own immaturity. But he who has already attained maturity, as we have learned about Moses, will be ashamed to be called the son of one who is barren by nature. For truly barren is profane education, which is always in labor but never gives birth. For what fruit worthy of such pangs does philosophy show for being so long in labor? Do not all who are full of wind and never come to term miscarry before they come to the light of the knowledge of God? Although they could as well become men if they were not altogether hidden in the womb of barren wisdom? Now after living with the princess of the Egyptians for such a long time that he seemed to share in their honors, he must return to his natural mother. Indeed, he was not separated from her while he was being brought up by the mistress, by the princess rather, but was nursed by his mother's milk, as the history states. This teaches, it seems to me, that if we should be involved with profane teachings during our education, we should not separate ourselves from the nourishment of the church's milk, which would be her laws and customs. By these, the soul is nourished and matured thus being given the means of ascending the height. And it is true that he who looks to both the profane doctrines and to the doctrines of the fathers will find himself between two antagonists. For the foreigner in worship is opposed to the Hebrew teaching and contentiously strives to appear stronger than the Israelite. And so he seems to be many and so he seems to be to many of the more superficial who abandon the faith of their fathers and fight on the side of the enemy, becoming transgressors of the father's teaching. On the other hand, he who is great and noble in soul like Moses slays with his own hand the one who rises in opposition to true religion. One may moreover find this same conflict in us, for man is set before the competitors as the prize of their contest. He makes the one with whom he sides the victor over the other. The fight of the Egyptian against the Hebrew is like the fight of idolatry against true religion, of licentiousness against self-control, of injustice against righteousness, of arrogance against humility, and of everything against what is perceived by its opposite.
So we are to see, uh, Gregory of Nyssa tells us, in the battle between uh, the foreigner and the Israelite that occurs early in uh, the story of Moses. Do you remember in Exodus where he separates the two and actually kills the Egyptian and hides the body? This is before he leaves uh, Egypt for the first time. We're to see in that struggle the fight of idolatry against true religion and of licentiousness against self-control. And Moses, this is Gregory's words, Moses teaches us by his own example to take our stand with virtue as with a kinsman and to kill virtue's adversary. The victory of true religion is the death and deconstruction of idolatry. So also injustice is killed by righteousness and arrogance is slain by humility. Still here speaking of that conflict in Exodus and the allegorical interpretation of it um, as good against evil. And Gregory continues, The dispute of the two Israelites with each other occurs also in us. There would be no occasion for wicked heretical opinions to arise unless erroneous reasonings withstood the truth. If, therefore, we by ourselves are too weak to give the victory to what is righteous, since the bad is stronger in its attacks and rejects the rule of truth, we must flee as quickly as possible in accordance with a historical example from the conflict to the greater and higher teachings of the mysteries." And if we must again live with a foreigner, that is to say, if need requires us to associate with profane wisdom, let us with determination scatter the wicked shepherds from their unjust use of the wells, which means let us reprove the teachers of evil for their wicked use of instruction. Let's see. Now, Gregory talks about the burning bush. And we see here he relates it directly to the Theotokos, Mary, the mother of God. From this, we learn also the mystery of the virgin. The light of divinity, which through birth shone from her into human life, did not consume the burning bush, even as the flower of her virginity was not withered by giving birth. That light teaches us what we must do to stand within the rays of true light. Here he goes from talking about the Virgin Mary to a discussion of holiness seen in the light of truth. Sandaled feet cannot ascend that height where the light of truth is seen, but the dead and earthly covering of skins, which was placed around our nature at the beginning when we were found naked because of disobedience to the divine will, divine will must be removed from the feet of the soul. So hearkening back to when Moses is confronted by the burning bush and is told by God to remove his shoes for he is on holy ground. In this, Gregory sees that shoes are a symbol of our sinfulness. For Adam and Eve had no need of shoes before they sinned. And so they are symbols of our disobedience. And that's why God requires their removal. Gregory continues, when we do this, the knowledge of truth will result and manifest itself. The full knowledge of being comes about by purifying our opinion concerning non-being. It seems to me that at the time the great Moses was instructed in the theophany, he came to know that none of those things which are apprehended by sense perception and contemplated by the understanding really subsists 
but that the transcendent essence and cause of the universe on which everything depends alone subsists. So Moses is getting a revelation, in fact, a theophany of God's truth and the transcendental nature through the burning bush. And, um, as is common among the church fathers, Gregory relates this to the Incarnation. He says, These seem to me to signify in a figure the mystery of the Lord's Incarnation, a manifestation of deity to men, which affects the death of the tyrant and sets free those under his power. When he was manifested to us from the bosom of the Father, he was changed to be like us. After he wiped away our infirmities, he again returned to his own bosom, the hand which had been among us, and received our complexion. The Father is the bosom of the right hand. What is impassable by nature did not change into what is passable, but what is mutable and subject to passions was transformed into impassibility through its participation in the immutable. And then he has a little discourse on the change of Moses' rod into a snake. And he asks whether we're supposed to see in this a Christological figure, since serpents are genuinely or generally seen as signifying the devil. He says this, The change from a rod into a snake should not trouble the lovers of Christ, as if we were adapting the doctrine of the Incarnation to an unsuitable animal. For the truth himself, through the voice of the gospel, does not refuse a comparison like this in saying, And the Son of Man must be lifted up, as Moses lifted up the servant, the serpent in the desert. <coughs> now the serpent that Jesus is referencing in that passage in John 3 is not his rod at the beginning of Exodus. <coughs> and Gregory of Nyssa knows this. But his point is to say that serpents are not always meant to signify Satan, since Christ himself identified with one in the narrative of the Old Testament. The teaching is clear, for if the father of sin is called a serpent by Holy Scripture, and what is born of the serpent is certainly a serpent, it follows that sin is synonymous with the one who begot it. But the apostolic word testifies that the Lord was made into sin for our sake by being invested with our sinful nature. This figure, therefore, is rightfully applied to the Lord. For if sin is a serpent and the Lord became sin, the logical conclusion should be evident to all. By becoming sin, he also became also a serpent, which is nothing other than sin. For our sake, he became a serpent that he might devour and consume the Egyptian serpents produced by the sorcerers. Let's see. He then speaks a little bit about Moses' foreign wife. The foreign wife will follow him, for there are certain things derived from profane education which should not be rejected when we propose to give birth to virtue. Indeed, moral and natural philosophy may become at certain times a comrade, friend, and companion of life to the higher way, provided that the offspring of this union introduce nothing of a foreign defilement. Let's see. There's a lot of symbols in here, so I don't want to read them all for the sake of time. 
Let's see which other ones are uh, very interesting. Okay, so in his discourse on the plagues of Egypt, he has a little discourse on the reason for miracles. And it says this, If we first learn the general spiritual intent of miracles, we should then be able to apply this insight to individual miracles. True doctrine conforms to the dispositions of those receiving the word. For although the word presents to all equally what is good and bad, the one who is favorably disposed to what is presented has his understanding enlightened. But the darkness of ignorance remains with the one who is obstinately disposed and does not permit his soul to behold the ray of truth. If our general understanding of these things is not false, the specific items would certainly not be different since the individual part is demonstrated with the whole. So then it is not marvelous that at all that the Hebrew, although living in the midst of foreigners, remains unaffected by the evils of the Egyptians. One can also see the same thing happening now in populous cities where people are holding contradictory opinions. To some, the stream of faith from which they draw by means of the divine teaching is fresh and clear. But to others who live as the Egyptians do and draw by the means of their own evil presuppositions, the water becomes corrupted blood. So in effect, he's saying that the plagues are only, um, the effectiveness of the plagues are determined by the heart of the people, which is why the people of God were not affected by the plagues in the same way that the Egyptians were. Now, one of the themes that's clear in a lot of works of Gregory of Nyssa is the emphasis on free will. And he has a section on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and free will. Let us not be astonished if the history says that the rod of virtue did these things to the Egyptians, for it also says that the tyrant was hardened by God. Now, how could he be condemned if he were disposed by divine constraint to be stubborn and obstinate? Somewhere, the divine apostle also expresses the same thought. Since they refused to see it was rational to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to shameful passions speaking about those who commit sodomy and those who disgrace themselves by dishonorable and unmentionable profligacy. But even if what has been said before is so stated in Scripture, and God does in this way entirely give up to dishonorable passions, the one who gives himself up to them... or uh, Sorry, let me restart that. <laughs> but even if what has been said before is so stated by Scripture, and God does in this way entirely give up to dishonorable passions, the one who, is, who gives himself up to them, still Pharaoh is not hardened by the divine will, nor is the frog-like life fashioned by virtue. A reference to his earlier discourse on the plague of the frogs. For if this were to be willed by the divine nature, then certainly any human choice would fall into line in every case so that no distinction between virtue and vice in life could be observed. People live differently. Some live uprightly in virtue, while others slide into vice. One would not reasonably attribute these differences in their lives to some divine constraint which lies outside themselves. It lies within each person's power to make this choice. It is as if someone who has not seen the sun blames it for causing him to fall into the ditch. Yet we do not hold that the luminary in anger pushes into the ditch someone who does not choose to look at it. Rather, we would interpret this statement in a more reasonable manner. It is the failure to participate in the light 
that causes the person who does not see to fall into the ditch. In the same way, the thought of the apostle should be clear that it is those who do not acknowledge God who are delivered up to shameful affections than that the Egyptian tyrant is hardened by God, not because the divine will places the resistance in the soul of Pharaoh, but because the free will through its inclination to evil does not receive the word which softens resistance. That seems pretty clear. That free will is to be maintained because of the sinfulness of our nature, and that God is simply letting us do what we would choose to do. Let's see. Death of the firstborn. I've got to start speeding through this because there's a whole lot to get to. But this is a very interesting portion. Uh, Let's see. Intending to remove his countrymen from evil, he brought death upon all the firstborn in Egypt. By doing this, he laid down for us the principle that it is necessary to destroy utterly the first birth of evil. It is impossible to flee the Egyptian life in any other way. It does not seem good to me to pass this interpretation by without further contemplation. How would a concept worthy of God be preserved in the description of what happened if one looked only to the history? The Egyptian acts unjustly and in his places punished his newborn child, who in his infancy cannot discern what is good and what is not. His life has no experience of evil, for infancy is not capable of passion, He does not know how to distinguish between his right hand and his left. The infant lifts his eyes only to his mother's nipple, and tears are the sole perceptible sign of his sadness. And if he obtains anything which his nature desires, he signifies his pleasure by smiling. If such a one now pays the penalty of his father's wickedness, where is justice? Where is piety? Where is holiness? Where is Ezekiel? Who cries, the man who has sinned is the man who must die, and a son is not to suffer for the sins of his father. How can the history so contradict reason? Therefore, as we look for the true spiritual meaning, seeking to determine whether the events took place typologically, we should be prepared to believe that the lawgiver has taught through the thing said. The teaching is this, when through virtue one comes to grips with any evil, He must completely destroy the first beginnings of evil. For when he slays the beginning, he destroys at the same time what follows after it. The Lord teaches the same thing in the gospel, all but explicitly calling on us to kill the firstborn of the Egyptian evils when he commands us to abolish lust and anger and to have no more fear of the stain of adultery or the guilt of murder. Neither of these things would develop of itself, but anger produces murder and lust produces adultery. So there's a defense of an allegorical, typological reading of historical things in the Old Testament. Gregory of Nyssa's argument is basically that if we're to take the history of the people of Israel simply at face value and use what is sometimes called a historical grammatical um, method of interpretation then we would have to concede that God is in fact unjust for he is punishing the firstborn children for the sins of their fathers. But, he says, if we instead take a typological reading, then God is justified in doing this because he is teaching us a lesson. And the lesson is to go to the root of the sin. 
in our own lives. Let's see here. There's a whole lot that he says, and so I want to uh, read some of the most interesting parts. He talks about the manna from heaven, of course, typologically drawing that to Christ. Um, Let's see. And also, I'll read a little bit about what he says about the fact that um, God commanded the people of Israel to gather manna daily, and that if they were to keep it and stockhouse their manna, it would turn rotten and worms would grow in it. And here's what Gregory of Nyssa says about that. In this account, scripture after a fashion cries out to the covetous that the insatiable greed of those always hoarding surplus is turned into worms. Everything beyond what they need encompassed by this covetous desire becomes on the next day, that is in the future life, a worm to the person that hoards it. He who hears worm certainly perceives the undying worm, which is made alive by covetousness. The fact that what is stored up continues to supply nourishment and experiences, no corruption only on the Sabbath, contains the following counsel. There is a time in the course of one's life when he must be grasping, at the same time when what is gathered does not submit to corruption. Then we pass beyond the preparation of this life and come to the rest after death. It will become useful to us. The day before the Sabbath is named the preparation for the Sabbath. This day would be the present life in which we prepare for ourselves the things of the life to come. Let us see here. And now we come to the mountain of divine knowledge, which in a sense is seen as a climax of Moses' life. Gregory says this, Again, the scripture leads our understanding upward to the higher levels of virtue. For the man who received strength from the flood and showed his power in fighting with his enemies and was the victor over his opponents is then led to the ineffable knowledge of God. Scripture teaches us by these things the nature and the number of things one must accomplish in life before he would at some time dare to approach in his understanding the mountain of the knowledge of God, to hear the sound of the trumpets, to enter into the darkness where God is, to inscribe the tablets with divine characters, and if these should be broken through some offense, again to present the hand-cut tables to God and to carve with the divine finger the letters which were damaged on the first tables. So there is a purity that one needs. There is an experience and a maturity one needs in the mind of Gregory of Nyssa in order to climb the mountain of knowledge of God. He goes into the typology of the priestly vestments, the typology of the tabernacle, which of course is more fully outlined in the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, Let me see if there's anything else that's of certain interest. Ah, the perfection of the servant. This is nearing the end of his discourse. And it is fascinating. Talking about Moses' death, Gregory says this, What does the history say about this? That Moses, the servant of Yahweh, died as Yahweh decreed, and no one has ever found his grave. His eyes were undimmed and his face unimpaired. From this we learn that when one has accomplished such noble actions, he is considered worthy of this sublime name, to be called servant of Yahweh, which is the same as saying that he is better 
than all the others. For one would not serve God unless he had become superior to everyone in the world. This for him is the end of the virtuous life, an end wrought by the word of God. History speaks of death, in quotes, a living death, which is not followed by the grave, or fills the tomb, or brings dimness to the eyes and aging to the person. What then are we taught through what has been said? To have but one purpose in life, to be called servants of God by virtue of the lives we live. For when you conquer all enemies, the Egyptian, the Amalekite, the Edomian, the Midianite, cross the waters, are enlightened by the cloud, are sweetened by the wood, drink from the rock, taste from the food from above, make your ascent up the mountain through purity and sanctity. And when you arrive there, you are instructed in the divine mystery by the sound of the trumpets, and in the impenetrable darkness drawn near to God by your faith, and there are taught the mysteries of the tabernacle and the dignity of the priesthood. And when you as a sculptor carve in your own heart the divine oracles which you receive from God, and when you destroy the golden idol, that is, if you wipe from your life the desire of covetousness, and when you are elevated to such heights that you appear invincible to the magic of Balaam, by magic you will perceive the crafty deceit of this life through which men drugged as though by some falter of Circe are changed into the form of irrational animals and leave their proper nature. And when you come through all these things, and the staff of the priesthood blossoms in you, drawing no moisture at all from the earth, but having its own unique power for producing fruit, that is the fruit whose first taste is bitter and tough, but whose inside is sweet and edible, when you destroy everything which opposes your worth, as Dathan was swallowed up in the earth and Korah was consumed by the fire, then you will draw near the goal. I mean by goal that for the sake of which everything is done, for example, the goal of agriculture is the enjoyment of its fruits. The goal of building a house is living in it. The goal of commerce is wealth, and the goal of striving in contests is the prize. In the same way, too, the goal of the sublime way of life is being called a servant of God. Along with this honor is contemplated an end which is not covered by a tomb. It refers to the life lived simply and free from evil appendages. And here is his conclusion, which I will read uh, in its entirety because it's one, it's short, and two, it's very, very valuable. These things concerning the perfection of the virtuous life, O Caesareus, man of God, we have briefly written to you, tracing an outline like a pattern of beauty, the life of the great Moses, so that each one of us might copy the image of the beauty which has been shown to us by imitating his way of life. What more trustworthy witness of the fact that Moses did attain to the perfection which was possible would be found than the divine voice which said to him, I have known you more than all the others. It is also shown in the fact that he is named the friend of God by God himself and by preferring to perish with all the rest if the divine one did not through his goodwill forgive their errors. He stayed God's wrath against the Israelites. God averted judgment so as not to grieve his friend. All such things are clear testimony in demonstration of the fact that the life of Moses did ascend the highest mount of perfection. Since the goal of the virtuous way of life was the very thing we have been seeking, and this goal has been found in what we have said, it is time for you, noble friend, to look to that example. 
and by transferring to your own life what is contemplated through spiritual interpretation of the things spoken literally, to be known by God and to become his friend. This is true perfection, not to avoid a wicked life because like slaves we servilely fear punishment, nor to do good because we hope for rewards as if cashing in on the virtuous life by some business-like and contractual arrangement. On the contrary, disregarding all those things for which we hope and which have been reserved by promise, we regard falling from God's friendship. We regard falling from God's friendship as the only thing dreadful. And we consider becoming God's friend the only thing worthy of honor and desire. This, if I have said, is the perfection of life. As your understanding is lifted up to what is magnificent and divine, whatever you may find, and I know full well that you will find many things, will most certainly be for the common benefit in Christ Jesus. Amen. And so Gregory ends his discourse on the life of Moses. And we see his heart and the reason for the importance of um, allegorical and typological interpretations is because it all culminates in the fact that as Moses was a friend of God, so we too are to be the friends of God. And that is the goal of our spiritual life. I will see you next time. Uh, Till then, I hope you all have a blessed week.